I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Dr. Gabor Mate joins me again. He's just published a new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. It looks at the causes of illness and how our society and culture breeds disease. We seem obsessed with health, yet our collective health isn't great. We're concerned about living better, healthier lives, but they're really not ideal. 70% of Americans are on at least one prescription drug, while one in five Canadians has high blood pressure. I'll uh, ask Dr. Maté about his work as a physician and how he approached treating a physical illness presented by a patient. Very often he looked at the larger story of the patient. We talk about trauma, namely his own. It's a big book, his magnum opus, as it were. Dr. Gabor Mate is uh, the noted public speaker and best-selling author. He has written many books, including the award-winning In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Dr. Mate first appeared on this program in 2018 on the 10th anniversary of that book's publication. This new book is uh, from Avery and uh, written with his son, Daniel Mate, who also has been on the program before and who I hope to have on shortly. The website for more is at drgabormate.com. We taped this interview nearly three weeks ago. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. How insidious, uh, Dr. Mate, is this word normal? I mean, um, it's sort of become the arbiter uh, of, of good, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And the confusion in our society is that we believe that what is the norm in our culture it's also the way things have to be, and then it's healthy and natural. And what I'm saying is that the way our society works, it actually goes against what's healthy and natural for human beings in many ways. Has our culture always been like this, though? I mean, I, 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 I'm sort of wondering as I'm reading the book, because you're quite candid about your, your upbringing and then bringing up your own children and what the world is like today. Um, are there are there stark differences from the time that, um, uh, say, you, you were raising children or even the time when you were growing up as to now? I think parenting has become much more stressed, much more difficult, much more isolated, uh, much more fraught. And uh, a lot of parents are, despite all the love they have for their kids and their devotion, are passing on their stresses to their children. And uh, we see that in the rise of mental health conditions in children. There was an article in the New York Times just three, four days ago about this teenager who's on 10 different psychiatric medications. Uh The the number of children being diagnosed with ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder and anxiety and depression is going up and up and up. The rate of childhood suicide um, is going up. The number of... um, Children with inflammatory bowel conditions in Canada is growing up. And this, to me, reflects a very stressed culture. And parents can't help but pass on their stress to their children. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Um, You mentioned in the book, uh, this episode in your life, where where you started taking Prozac. And uh, I'm wondering, um, because I found that extremely illustrative in terms of, say, how you view prescription drugs. Um, you, you found Prozac to be beneficial, but it didn't address the root of the problem. And, and uh, I sort of wonder, I mean, I guess we all know that there's a great deal of reliance on prescription drugs, a great use of it, even an addiction to it. Um, how, do you, how do you talk about that in the book in terms of, of your own experience? Eh? 
Well, so as a, as a, as a physician, I was trained in a very narrowly biological view of human health, both mental health and physical health. So depression is largely seen as an issue of brain biology, and then how we treat it is give medications to alter the brain biology, as with, uh, say, Prozac or Paxil or mm -hmm. any number of uh, psychiatric medications. Now, that can sometimes help, and I acknowledge that it helped me as much as it might have, but, I mean, it did. It made a significant difference. But as you suggest, it didn't address the underlying issue because medical training doesn't talk about this, mm. is that people's depressions and their mental health conditions are invariably the result of childhood stress and trauma, which then people carry into their adult lives so that without addressing the fundamental issue, we're just adjusting or mitigating symptoms, mm. which sometimes can be very helpful, but it's never sufficient. Or take a burgeoning diagnosis like ADHD, which a lot more kids are being diagnosed with these days. If we see it as simply as a biological brain problem, we would just give kids Ritalin, which sometimes helps, yeah. sometimes hurts, uh -huh. but it never addresses the reasons why so many kids find themselves tuning out these days, which has to do with stress. And so unless we address the stress of families and family systems and schools and communities, we're just going to be fostering more children with mental health conditions. You write in the book, Dr. Mate, about your, your practice as a physician in terms of how when somebody would come to you with a problem, physical especially, um, you would um, seek out the larger story of, of, of the, the patient in terms of, say, um, uh, what their circumstances are in life, where, how, how they live, etc. And, and you found that to be useful in terms of, uh, say, giving you clues as to, to how to treat the physical ailment. Uh, are more doctors doing that today, do you think? Well, not nearly enough. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a particularly salient example. So the great Canadian physician, medical icon in the 19th century, Sir William Osler, uh, said that rheumatoid arthritis was a condition driven by stress and worry. Now, he said this in the 1890s. Yeah. Now, since then, we've had multiple, multiple studies showing the relationship between trauma and stress and rheumatoid arthritis. And because, because of the scientifically demonstrated unshakable unity of mind and body. Now, physicians are not trained in this. At the University of British Columbia Medical School, when I was trained, nobody gave us a single lecture about the impact of psychological trauma and stress on physical illness. Medical students still don't get those lectures. So when you go to the average physician with your flare-up of rheumatoid arthritis, nobody's going to ask you about your childhood. Nobody's going to ask you about stress in your life. They're just going to give you medications. Now, if you look at, say, the indigenous population in Canada, a native woman in Canada at six times the rate of rheumatoid arthritis than anybody else. Why? Because they're the most stressed and traumatized segment of the population. But most rheumatologists don't understand that. Mm -hmm. So all they do, and necessarily, they give out medications, but they don't help people heal from their traumas, which demonstrably could actually help people heal from their rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the other things, you, and you touched on this a moment ago, is, is the, um, the rise in, in conditions like inflammation. And, and I, I kept seeing inflammation throughout the book, and I'm just wondering how prevalent is that amongst us? And, and 
Um, what are some of the common instances where that manifests itself, say? Well, so inflammation, um, first of all, is related to trauma. The more traumatized you as a child, the more your body will be like to have inflammatory conditions. That's been demonstrated indisputably in scientific studies. Now, inflammation then can lead to autoimmune disease, like rheumatoid arthritis, uh -huh. multiple sclerosis, colitis, Crohn's disease. These are all inflammations. Eczema, chronic psoriasis, these are all inflammations. It can also lead, now we also know that it can lead to depression. So that inflammation is a significant factor, and science has also demonstrated that stress drives inflammation. Uh, in other words, emotional stress translates into physical inflammation in the body. Uh, so it's a significant issue, and the more stressed people are, the more likely to have, there to have inflammatory conditions. Um, it, it, you write in the book, um, and, and I didn't know this until I read the book, was that um, I found it fascinating that, that the, the diagnoses of, of MS, for example, um, there's a, a, a strong connection that, that's been proven to stress or trauma, and, and even um, some diagnosis of cancer, for example. Um, yeah. And I found this fascinating that um, it's largely people who, um, I should say largely, but, but there are instances of people who whose emotional concern for others neglects their own. Yeah, so, they, so what happens is that we have an emotional system for a reason. Our brains are wired for emotion. That includes rage, healthy anger, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, uh, caring, loving others, uh, seeking, lust, uh, play, grief, panic, fear. These are all healthy emotions to respond to our environment. Because you can see as, we, as human beings evolved out there in nature, if they didn't have these brain systems, we couldn't have survived. We share these brain systems with other mammals, by the way. Now, that means that one of the essential needs of children is the freedom to feel all their emotions, whether it's grief, whether it's fear, whether it's anger. Mm-hmm. Now, if children get the message for whatever reason that some of their emotions are not acceptable to their parents or to their culture, their brains will automatically repress those emotions, put them under the surface, so that the child can then fit in with the environment. But emotions are there to help support and defend our boundaries. Mm -hmm. So healthy anger is a boundary defense. Now, given the unity of mind and body, it turns out that the emotional system is not separable from an immune system. And the immune system's job is the same as the emotions, which is to protect our boundaries, to let in what's healthy and natural and, 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 and life-supporting, but to keep out what is toxic or dangerous. So emotions and immunity share the same function. When you repress the emotions in order to fit in, it turns out that you're also imbalancing the immune system. And that's been shown over and over and over again. And so that's why the repression of emotion then either disables the immune system or it turns it against you. So, so now you have increased risk of malignancy and increased risk of autoimmune disease. Uh, it's such a big book, Dr. Mate, and it's, it's a rich book, and you'll, you'll forgive me for jumping around as I am because there's just so many things I want to touch on. 
Um, the, the Some of the more delightful parts of the book I found, um, even though um, it's from a very um, uh, horrific time, uh, was was the the right the extracts that you provide in the book of, from your mother's writing? Mm. For, I, I guess this was a diary that she kept throughout the war. Is that right? Well, so I was born in 1944, January, um, uh-huh. in, in Hungary, and uh, to Jewish parents. And this is two months before the Nazis occupied Hungary. So um, the genocide of Hungarian Jewry, which killed half a million people, including my grandparents, yeah. within within three months began when I was two months of age. And my mother did keep a, a sort of a fitful diary of that my first year and a half of life or two years of life, not regularly under the conditions she barely could, but she did uh, record some of the events. And so I did in the book quote from that diary as a way of um, actually understanding but also explaining um, some of the patterns that I felt pursued for a lifetime because of that early trauma. Yeah, and it, it, it's um, uh, just fascinating to read how you um, connect to um, your own trauma that you grew up with, say, that you carried with you throughout your life, um, and, and you could almost pinpoint to, to where that comes from through mm-hmm. her experience. And um, you mentioned in the book, though, that, that there is a point where um, there, there comes a point where uh, Hitler made me do it. Won't fly. Uh, you, you, you even ask your um, a colleague in in the book about um, wh- whether blaming mothers ever stops. Um, yeah. You mentioned humorously that that um, you're not carrying Auschwitz around with you anymore. Um, but but I, I found it so fascinating that that you were able to see how the, this intergenerational trauma does affect a lot of us, doesn't it? Well. This is hardly my own personal yeah. insight. Uh-huh. This is just what the science shows. And uh, there's a book called It Didn't Start With You by a colleague called Mark Woolen, who's a family therapist. And um, it doesn't start with that. Nobody uh-huh. because, For example, I have adult children. They've had their challenges and issues in their lives. I know where that came from. It came from the traumas that my wife and I passed on to them. But we loved them. We did our best. We were totally devoted to them. But you can't help but pass on your traumas until you've worked them through. And we hadn't when we were young parents. So our children were affected by our traumas. And and our traumas were affected by our parents' traumas. So who are you going to blame? You know, there's no blame here. But it's important to understand the concept because, for example, if you look at Canadian society, when I mentioned that, uh, an indigenous woman is six times the rate of rheumatoid arthritis. Indigenous Canadians didn't use any rheumatoid arthritis whatsoever. Mm. So they, it's due to multi-generational trauma that was caused by the colonialism, by the displacement, by their exile from their lands and the robbery of their goods, the destruction or the attempted destruction of their culture, and then their 100-year torment in the residential schools. And that's why we see in our First Nations population much more addiction, suicide, early death, physical illness, um, diminished lifespan, and all kinds of mental health conditions. And it's because of the multi-generational nature of trauma. Uh, Dr. Matte, I hate to bring this up because it sounds like I'm talking about myself, but I actually met your mother. 
Um, in 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 high school, I was a volunteer at the Louis Breyer home where where okay. she was a resident, and yes. I didn't I wow. didn't have opportunity to talk to her at all. But I remember I walked by her one time and said hello, and she said hello. And what's fascinating is remembering that, and then reading your book and and seeing what a marvelous sense of humor she had as well. Yes, she did. She had a great sense of humor. Um, a very dry, great sense of humor. You know, um, I'll give you an example, if I may. Yeah. Um, after my book on ADHD was published, and I asked, this is disorder myself. That was my first book. Uh-huh. And uh, I went to great length to point out that I'm not blaming my mother because under the conditions of the war, how could she have helped but being a terrorized and stressed state? Mm-hmm. But then as an infant... I absorbed that, and the way I dealt with it was to tune out so that my ADD originated in my childhood suffering that this wasn't her fault. And I pointed this out at great length. Uh-huh. Well, the Toronto Star reviewed the book and said, Mate blames his mother. <laughs> um, and she was by that time in a Louis Breyer because of her muscular dystrophy. Uh-huh. And I said to her mom, the Toronto Star said, you started the Second World War. <laughs> and, my, and my mom said, sure I did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and to bring this to the, the present, this book um, is a collaboration with you and your son Daniel. Yes. Um, I've I've interviewed Daniel before, and I hope to have Daniel on in, in the next few weeks to talk about um, not only just working uh, on this book with you, but um, his career as, as uh, writing musicals and the sort. Um, yeah. What was it like to work with him? I mean, he describes this book as as your your magnus uh, opus. Do you see it as that? Oh, this is certainly my magnum opus in the sense that it pulls together and uh, advances every issue I've ever been engaged with, both in my personal and professional life, and also socially, culturally, and politically. So it's it's a uh, it's a big book, I think, in a very I hope in a very positive sense. And I could not have done it without Daniel's assistance. Uh, it was just too much for me to tackle on my own. He's a brilliant wordsmith, Daniel. He's also got great insights. At times it was tense because the father-son relationship, um, which is going to be our next book, we're going to write a book together called Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Adult Children and Their Parents. This is a workshop that we do. In fact, we'll do it locally in November sometime. Um, But that doesn't mean that a relationship has been totally resolved. And so, especially as we began to write the book, and I had a lot of anxieties about writing this book. I had a lot of tensions. I had a lot of doubts. And so... When I would get tense, I would get tense with my son. Right. And then we'd have to, and he'd have to kind of stand up for himself and say, hey, look that, I'm not going to take on your mental state. I had enough of that as a child. <laughs> so, uh, so we, we did a lot of mm, repair. It was not just a strict professional one, it also had to become a, a real um, deepening of our mutual respectful relationship for another yeah and knowing him as i i do just just slightly um, having interviewed him before i can mm-hmm. see how the the, the, the um, parts of the book where where i think his influence might have might have touched i mean certainly references to rock songs perhaps or uh, yeah. popular culture probably came from him rather than than your own consumption say right uh, that's not entirely so but but you're not the first one to say that they can uh recognize his um, his touch here, which is a good thing, because uh, well, it wouldn't have happened. But, uh-huh. 
if it had happened, it would have been more heavy-handed and less accessible, I think. Um, Dr. Mate, um, there's a part in the book that I found fascinating in terms of um, how we look at, say, um, how we view other people. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know if you have an answer to the question. Um, if, if there's a difference between feeling pity, whether it's for yourself or somebody else, as, as to feeling compassion. Is there a difference between feeling pity versus feeling compassion? I mean, oh, yeah. we, we tend pity, to think yeah. of the two as the same. Uh, it, it's no, not the no, same, as no, it? No, no, they're not. Pity is when you're looking down at somebody and um, you see them as kind of a helpless victim and uh, you see their suffering as somewhat different from your own. Um, and you, and it, there's a kind of a sense of superiority in pity. Mm-hmm. Compassion actually literally means to suffer with. Uh, that's the Latin meaning of the word. So when you have compassion for somebody, you recognize their suffering, but you're doing it from a position of equality. And you're sensing their suffering, and uh, you wish them not to suffer, and you might even extend a hand to help them, but not from the point of view of you pity my fellow human being. So it's a totally different experience, and it has completely different impact. The the other thing that that your book uh, talks about that I, that um, I, I think it, it will be interesting to a lot of people, but um, it doesn't leave me much um, hope. I must admit is is uh, when you talk about the, our economic culture, capitalism obviously promotes a lot yeah. of the division amongst us um, yeah. and that, that obviously hurts us. Um, you know, Dr. Matthew, the last time I checked, capitalism doesn't seem to be on the way out. What then? I mean, how, how do you remain optimistic uh, considering the sort of world we live in? Well, look, we live under one particular system right now. No human system ever lasts forever. And <clears throat> no one ever did. None ever did in the history of human beings. And none ever will because people and societies are constantly in evolution and they're in the world chain. I don't have to believe in a particular system. I believe in human beings. I believe in our capacity for growth, for healing, for transformation. And um, so my optimism isn't based on any particular political system. It's based on what I understand about human beings. And, and so at the, at the end of the day, we are resilient, I guess, and that, that we will get through this and get better even? We are resilient. And uh, more than that, you know, the way nature created us, the way we evolved over millions and hundreds of thousands of years, we were uh, communal, we were collaborative, we were connected, and um, self-interest was not somehow set against uh, group and communal interest. It was seen as congruent with it. Mm-hmm. And you can see this in indigenous people throughout the world. You can see it in hunter-gatherer tribes, those that have survived. And you can see this throughout the study of uh, a human history and evolution. And that, I think, is our true nature. And most people, even under this system that tells us that our essence is to be competitive and aggressive and selfish, uh, even in this system, most people want to be kind. They want to be connected to others. Didn't COVID just teach us mm-hmm. how important human connections are? Right. So despite what the system tells us for 
well, there's a book. Uh, there's a book that I quote by a very um, leading American psychiatrist and neuroscientist, Bruce Perry, and he wrote a book called Born for Love. And then we are actually born for love. That's actually how we're born. Mm-hmm. We're wired for it. Now he also points out, as I do, that we're born for it, but it depends on environment and circumstances to make us capable of being loving to one another. It doesn't automatically happen. But it is, it's in us. And so the intention of this book is to help people remind us, uh, help, help to remind people of who we really are and who we really can be. Dr. Matte, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. I'm, I'm sure that this book will help a lot of people, and, and um, I, I offer you good wishes as uh, it's to be released. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for your reading the book. The website for more is at drgabormate.com. The book is called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. It's published by Avery. It is written with his uh, son, Daniel Mate. Dr. Gabor Matti, join me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plantin.